Welcome back to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark Sayers. How are you, Mark? I am good. How are you? Good. Um, doing pretty well at staving off both you and Daniel's madness. We have been driven a little bit mad, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, the land's down under. Now, New Zealand as well is, yep. is in lockdown. Um, and uh, we... It's a little bit of an outlet to see some yeah. other people and be stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> been at home for the last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. so uh, as we've been setting up, it's been a bit mad. But now we're serious as we'll talk about serious things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I do appreciate the madness. I think it it's a great coping strategy. Mm. Um, what we are thankful for is that we can come in um, mm. and record this. So, um, yeah, we are in a privileged position where we have the opportunity to do that. So very thankful for that. Speaking of why we're locked down, we are obviously in a pandemic. Mm. Don't know whether you knew that. Uh, And we've had a few questions come in and this one that I'm going to read out uh, comes from an anonymous listener. Uh, Why has the pandemic become politicised? Great question. Well, any historical event... Um, always occurs within a historical context. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't occur in a vacuum. If we look at the first pandemic uh, that people sort of, I guess, would know about historically and which was referred to a lot when COVID-19 kicked off is the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. which occurred um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And the historical context for that was at the end of the Great War, the First World War. Um, and uh, it's interesting, the name, the Spanish flu, in a sense, is quite unfair on Spain. Um, because it didn't originate in Spain. The reason it's called the Spanish flu is that Spain was not involved in the war. Okay. Um, it remained neutral. And uh, therefore, uh, they didn't have to protect morale of troops or populations mm. who'd gone through the war. So they just started reporting on what was actually happening, which was that people were getting this you know, really deadly flu and uh, you know, their, their newspapers. So uh, what was happening with a lot of the other powers that were involved in the, in the First World War is that they weren't reporting on it. So the Germans and the English and, and so on were not reporting on what was happening. Um, we now know that, um, I mean, there's a few, I think, candidates of where the Spanish flu originated, but it wasn't Spain. Okay. Um, so uh, what then happened was that the Spanish flu went around the world because it came at the end of the war. And you can imagine the terrible, terrible sanitary conditions in the trench warfare that we saw, particularly on the Western Front. And then um, with the troops returning home, they took it, you know, they had troops all over the world in the First World War from, you know, colonial troops and, you know, you know which went back everywhere. And uh, they took, uh, um, you know, the then flu across the world and this mm-hmm. huge movement of people. So that shows us how things like pandemics, they don't ho- operate in a vacuum. Now, COVID-19 breaks out, um, you know, really in depends, you know, what we will find out as we get to the origins either at the beginning of 2020 or the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. And um, it breaks out with a couple of contexts. The first context is that it breaks out in the midst of uh, escalating trade war between the United States and China. Okay. And um, also not just a trade war, but really one of those sort of, um, you know, moments where you have a global superpower, you have, you know, a a centralised power of the day, and you have a rising power meeting it. And obviously you've got the United States as the central power of the day and then you've got China, which is rising. So there's this tremendous competition between the two economically um, in terms of information and cyber warfare and all these things. So they're not in, not in a physical war, but there's a sense of you know, great competition. Great, call it, they call it great power competition. Mm-hmm. So the arrival of COVID-19 gets played into that context. And this is where some of the, you know, you see some of the arguments around the World Health Organization's probe into the origins of COVID and people are like, you know, can you trust what's coming out of uh, China? Then you got the Chinese saying that actually, you know, COVID came to, you know, China because of the World Army Games and they're trying to trace it back to the origins at Fort Detrick, you know, which is sort of the center of US biological weapons programs. So you've got all of that is going on. So you've had this tremendous sort of, uh, you know, confusing and muddying of the waters yeah. because of that great power competition. So that's, that's at a macro scale. The second level is then it comes into the United States and you've got uh, a culture war that's occurring in the United States. You've got this moment of tremendous political polarization in the United States, which has you know, been there through a lot of American history. Um, but particularly, I think it's really reached a fever pitch, particularly with the election of Donald Trump. And you've got this America divided into you know, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and progressives. You know, in many yeah. ways, that's become the almost the organizing principle story, which Americans um, – 
you know, put uses two containers to, to process yes. anything. Yep. Um, now, what's really interesting about COVID is, you know, and, and following it from really early on is that it's actually almost people who are taking COVID seriously have almost swapped sides on different times. Yes. So when when the virus first came, it was really interesting. It was actually sort of um, – there was a number of like Silicon Valley types, but there was people like Steve Bannon and stuff like that who were actually um, – because, because President Trump was pushing back on China mm. and having this trade war – um, people saw it as evidence that actually, you know, using it is sort of as part of that. So it was almost like the first iteration of it in the American political scene was like, this is a way, look, China's doing this, look what's going on there, they're hiding this, we need to protect ourselves from it. And what's really interesting too is that, you know, the, the sort of Trumpian doctrine of, you know, build a war, keep the world out, having then these sort of quarantine measures where you actually want to shut out what was going on in China. So it was really interesting. That was sort of the first iteration. And then you actually had, if you go back and look at the historical record, you it was processed. So early on, it was almost sort of Republicans wanting to take COVID seriously and Democrats not. So there's actually this fascinating, like you can go look at an internet wayback machine of like, I think it's Vox and stuff like this, had these articles like almost like, don't get worried about coronavirus. It's this big blue, you know, blow up that the Republicans are doing because they want to keep China out and they want to keep foreigners out. Mm -hmm. and because early on too, a lot of the calls were to quarantine nations and to shut borders. People then took that as part of the overall discussion that had already been happening around immigration. And seeing Donald Trump, who wanted to you know, control immigration and build a wall, et cetera, et cetera, people then interpreted it in that, which is fascinating. And there's, you know, there's early tweets where um, you know, there were people saying, don't go to um, you know, Chinatown celebrations in San Francisco. And there's a Democrat, I think, it was, I think it was the mayor or something, put up a thing saying, no, it's perfectly safe to go to this event. <laughs> you know, and you know, you're almost a bit racist if you don't want to go to these events and you're afraid of this. And it's mm. just the flu. So it's interesting. The just the flu thing at first was going from Democrats. Um, but then it begins to change yeah. and um, I think it begins to sort of hit that sort of almost then the Republican sort of idea of, you know, personal, you know, libertarianism and personal freedom. Obviously, as a pandemic, then it gets more serious. It actually you have to curtail some of your freedoms to deal with it and you have a collective response. So then it sort of flips again. And then you sort of have this slow change where you've got Democrats sort of seeing that, oh, hang on, this is actually a public health issue. It sort of then more moves into the things that traditionally people on the left are more interested in, collectivism, good public health response, government mm -hmm. response, and so on, versus individualism. And then it flips again. Um, so it then moves to more the Republicans not wanting to take it as serious or, you know, like pushing back on it and the sort of Democrats make it more serious. But then again, it flips again. <laughs> you had um, sort of obviously uh, with the death of George Floyd and you have these sort of protest movements and then you start to hear people on the right like, oh, why are they all gathering in the streets? This is going to spread coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, and then people saying, oh, no, it's fine. You know, it's okay outdoors. And so you've actually, if you, if you watch for a period, probably the first six months, it was going backwards and forwards for a little period there. And even you've seen stuff, like it's funny on Twitter, people put um, up images of like, there's people who've gone like, oh, this is perfectly safe, this, this protest march, but this Trump rally's bad and vice versa. People going, you know, this Trump rally's safe, but this protest march is bad. So what you see is that... Um, in many ways, the politicization of coronavirus, which is now seeped out around the world. So the other thing you've got to realize is you've got this American culture war, which wants to put everything into a container yes, um, as a way of understanding an increasingly complex world. Yeah. And we've spoken about which that. Which we before. kind of do as humans anyway. Yes, yes. Yeah, to understand things. Yeah. So it, it becomes a way of, I don't know what that is. Is this new phenomenon? And even things like Bitcoin now, it's interesting, like Bitcoin's in this real, and cyber, um, uh, uh, sorry, cryptocurrencies, it's this really moment where you can see where's it going to land? Mm. And it's sort of almost, you know, landing, there's some pushback um, sort of on the left a little bit to some of it, but then there's people on the left who still like it and so on. Really interesting. Um, it will eventually land in one of these things, and it's, but it's sort of short-circuiting it at the moment. Um, so you've got this... American culture war, and which has gotten more polarized. You know, there's some pre Pew uh, just did a sort of global study, and it came out that America's become even more polarized throughout COVID. Interestingly, Australia and New Zealand have become less polarized, which is fascinating. Mm. Um, and uh, you've then got because America's sort of got this hegemonic control over mass media and entertainment and increasingly as local newspapers around the world have sort of dropped off, plus the influence of the internet. 
Um, what that means is that culture war then is exported. Mm. So, you know, places like Canada, which would sort of have their own political culture and they still do and it's, you know, very, you know, you, you know uh, different to the United States, but you, you see it bleeding in, into other places. And you've even seen it here. So even at some of the protests that we've, you know, had against some of the coronavirus restriction stuff, you, there's people carrying American flags, there's people carrying the Tea Party flags, which is mm -hmm. fascinating, yeah. and Trump hats and stuff like that. So in some sense, because America is in a sense is like an idea and, you know, we're sort of in this American century of globalization, it means that culture war goes out. So you've got a bunch of um, people who, approach, who are pro processing something through an American uh, cultural lens. Now, whether you're in America or you're outside of America, you know, I think that that container of trying to put everything in those two buckets is an increasingly failed way of looking at the world. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the worst ways to see what's happening in the world is to try and look at it through the lens of domestic American politics. And so, um, you know, that's really the reason why. Now, also, there's what some other politicization, some of the politicization that we've seen around things like vaccines between yeah. Pfizer and AstraZeneca. You know, part of that played out, I think, some of the around Brexit. So, you know, you had AstraZeneca, which was really sort of, you know, come out of Britain and Britain yes. was, you know, very rapidly um, vaccinating. Yeah, this is just at a local level here in Australia yes. that yes. you're referring to. Yeah. So, um, you know, here in Australia, you've had this debate of do you get AstraZeneca, do you get Pfizer? Some of that is this play out of what was happening in Europe, where Europe mm. was sort of more using Pfizer, didn't want to use AstraZeneca. And, you know, there was even like, you know, like reports then banning AstraZeneca in certain European countries. So you see these local, sorry, you've also got another, so this this is, comes under the rubric really of vaccine nationalism. <laughs> you know, you've got Sinovac, um, which is the Chinese vaccine. Mm -hmm. So certain countries which have, you know, been caught, do we go with the sort of more Western ones or we might go with the Chinese ones? So all of this plays out in the background of politicization of a pandemic because of the existing fractures and, 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 and tensions already existing in the world. Yeah. And I mean, this is highlighted for so many of our listeners in their church contexts. So yes. having that um, understanding of where that politicization um, of what is a, a public health crisis yes. um, is is really helpful in addressing your congregations and the people that you lead, depending on what your context is. Mm. Um, still on that same path of uh, the American century, mm. so to speak, um, we had a question come in that basically, well, it's more of a statement. I like it. Thank you, Gary. Um, Jesus and John Wayne discuss. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this is referring to a, a really popular book um, which has come out recently. Um, the author's name temporarily escapes me. Do, uh, do, do Muzz? You can go do, Google do away. Do Mez, I think it is. Um, uh, and, and effectively um, uh, is really um, what well, we get our fact checkers uh, <laughs> rapidly typing. I mean, I should just leave Daniel to it. He's on yes. the computer. Christine Kerbez Do Mez. Um, and... Um, She's written a book um, which is really, I guess, having a look at particularly, um, let's call it an archetype of masculinity yeah. um, that you find in American culture, epitomised by John Wayne, mm -hmm. um, the uh, Hollywood actor who you know played for many years, primarily cowboy characters, um, but some others. And uh, you know, I think she's asking the questions of you know how does that how has that affected even how within the American evangelical subculture has affected views of masculinity yeah. with the American evangelical subculture? Really interesting at school, um, uh, you know, uh, at high school here in Australia. You know, I remember in year eleven, I think it was second last year of high school. You know, we we looked at the the classic sort of uh, movie, The Green Berets, with okay. um, yeah. John Wayne, which is very much this sort of propaganda movie, um, mm -hmm. which John Wayne. Um, I think he financed it or he very much pushed that movie. And really what it was was about the Green Berets and was trying to argue for, um, you know, the, the I guess the just cause of American involvement in, in the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a classic example of almost that sort of, you know, American um, figure and uh, almost what I would call a frontier figure. Richard Slotkin yeah. come up with, I don't know if he's the first one to coin it, but talked about the sort of myth of the frontier, which is yeah. the idea that, um, as America became a more industrial society, 
there was this sense that people felt that there was something being lost in the essence of what it was to be an American, sort of going into this new world frontier. Mm -hmm. And the myth of the frontier began to sort of uh, rise in people's minds as the East Coast became more industrialized and, and in a sense, just brought people into this industrial culture of collective collectivism and yeah. um, the individual sort of got lost in the urban city. Uh, this myth of the frontier going westward. Yeah. Um, We've talked know, about that before. Yes. On this yes. Podcast. Um, and so John Wayne is the embodiment of that, the sure. westward you know, cowboy figure. And it's mm. interesting that it's really popular at the time that, um, you know, America. So John Wayne, like if you think about the beginning of the American century, really begins after World War II. John Wayne's films are really popular, mm. um, you know, in the 1950s and 60s. And he's that classic, you know, embodiment of that character. Um, now, there's another really interesting John Wayne movie by John Ford called The Searchers which is a really fascinating movie. And it's actually sort of, I can't remember the like, year. Can we get a year on that? Is it 58? I'm guessing. I could be wrong. The Searchers, John Ford. Uh, and John Ford in that movie, he's, he's actually, it's quite a subversive movie, I think, for the time in the sense that what it does is it brings this character in. John Wayne's playing this character who is trying to rescue um, this- 56. 56. Hmm. Um, this person who's been um, abducted by- um, you know, Indigenous Americans and um, bring back. But then it's like this really interesting thing with the character of John Wayne is almost this untrustworthy character. It seems like he is the the good cowboy, but then you start to see this darker side that really yeah, what's okay. sort of driving him is racism and it's and what he's doing is almost starting to just touch on that idea of the frontier as, you know, a complex myth mm -hmm. and um, which is not just about entrepreneurialism and rugged individualism, but there's actually a price to pay. This is people's lands that are being taken. There's this background of racism, which is touched on the movie, which is really interesting. Um, and, you know, I think this is what's happening, that this book has hit a resonance in, in the United States in particular because mm. there's also a bigger question of what an American identity is. Yes. Um, I think we've, you know, we've spoken before, I think, for, you know, um, you know, some of the, I guess the ideas around deconstructing some of those imagery, um, you know, in that book, you know, is not unknown to us. Yes. But perhaps in America, it's more central to, um, I guess, that identity. In particular in the church, there has been um, this sense at different times. It's really interesting. In the 19th century in Britain, um, when Britain was at the height of its empire, there was this real sense, and it goes back to a lot of readings in the ancient world about how empires become corrupt. Mm -hmm. And one of the fears that is an empire reaches its sort of heights, that what that will mean is that original, you know, let's call it the frontier spirit of yeah. the empire is lost, that people fought to create this empire and that's lost, and then people become domesticated. Mm -hmm. And then they become sort of corrupt and sort of effete and over, you know, sophisticated. And you know, that's the fear that they have in the 19th century in the British Empire. And mm -hmm. what happens is the idea of beards, which, you know, like um, <laughs> come in. And I was reading Ben Wilson's book um, recently about Britain in the 1850s, the historian. And he talks about, you know, beards were, um, I've forgotten the name of the book, um, but beards were like fashionable because it's what colonial soldiers on the front lines of India or in the, you know, in Afghanistan, they were wearing these beards. Yeah. And so beards became popular back in London because it was a way of trying to recapture this sense of masculinity. And you saw, you know, there was also this this fear. And it's interesting too, because um Jesus and John Wayne is this this has this sense that uh um like uh you know, evangelicalism has got this this sense of masculinity which needs to be deconstructed. Really interesting in in nineteenth century England and and the UK, it was actually a fear. If you think about what happened, particularly in a British context of evangelicalism, it was this movement which actually empowered women in lots of ways. You had women who then got involved in all kinds of different, uh, you know, look at Methodism and you mm -hmm. look at this, there's this, all these different sort of mediating institutions that women got involved in. If you look at a lot of the origins of the suffragette movement, go back to Methodism here in Melbourne, um, the whole temperance movement, mm -hmm. um, was, um, which came out of Methodism, was actually one of the sort of first iterations um, of sort of women um, who were pushing back on domestic violence, which was caused by alcohol. Um, so part of what was going on in Britain at that time was there was a fear over that even evangelicalism and, and Christianity was making men um, sort of, you know, lose that masculine frontier spirit. Yeah. So this movement of, um, I think it was Charles Kingsley who came up with this, um, you know, called it muscular Christianity. Yeah. And there was this reconnection of how do we make the empire have its sort of, you know, muscular power again. And this is where bodybuilding comes in. It was fascinating. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. Complete, really interesting sidebar. There's also the interesting, if you, if you go back to some, even in, in Judaism, there was this um, similar thing happened in Europe where there was a sort of this way of actually moving, you know, the sort of Jewish archetype from sort of the intellectual back to sort of like this strong person connected. So you see, this didn't just flow into Christianity, it flew into other spaces as okay. well. Um, so... So interesting also in South America, there's this sense that people talk about in South America, there's lots of, you know, reflections on how evangelicalism comes and destroys the idea of machoism. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it sort of goes different ways in different places. But I think effectively why this book is, is I think, gaining a lot of readership, yes, it's about masculinity, but I think the bigger story is at sort of the height and potentially – the sort of end of the American century. And I'm just very aware of the images that we've seen in the last 24 hours coming out of Kabul and Kabul Airport, which, yeah. you know, people initially saying looks like the fall of Saigon in 19, was it 1976, you know, actually looks worse than that. Um, you know, if just from a complete sort of optics view of like sort of America, you know, leaving and then you've got the sort of frontiers imagery of the Taliban beards and, you know, yeah, we're back yeah. in the 19th century. Yeah, wow. um, so, yes, that's a very long answer to that question. It is, but it's good. Um, well, just on the Taliban. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, it is a very live uh, topic mm. at mm. the moment um, and, yeah, quite quite confronting for mm. many people around the world. Mm. Um, yeah, what would, you, what would you have to say about <sighs> that? Um, how do we as leaders approach, mm. approach this situation? Mm. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first point is, you know, obviously a half of what's happening for the, the people of Afghanistan who have yeah. gone through decades and decades. Well, I mean, well, absolutely. I think our Prime Minister said yesterday, we know what tragic history this country has. Mm. And um, so I think, you know, firstly, you know, for anyone listening, you know, how we can respond as the church in just really practical ways, in prayerful ways is I think really important. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, they, they, there's the language, you know, there's the saying is that, you know, Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Um, and I can talk about that in a second. But, you know, first of all, you know, the, the Afghan people, you know, and having met many Afghan people and known many Afghan people here in Melbourne mm. um, over the years. Um, and also, you know, I think of, you know, many, um, you know, or, you know, Afghan veterans here. I've, I've sat with and partially cared for both in Australia and, and spoken to people in the US, you know, for, yeah. for them to go through this and, and, and um, then see what's happening now. It's just, it's just, I just want to just sort of mark that. It's really, really difficult. Um, that statement, you know, Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Um, you know, we saw, again, Britain in the 19th century, um, the might of the British Empire at that stage for its military power, economic power, you know, outdone by this, this country, you yeah. know. Um, and, you know, the saying back then, I think it was Roger Kipling talked about, you know, the great game that, you know, Afghanistan's almost this plaything between these empires, you know, Britain and Russia and China and India. And, you know, sadly that same story is playing out. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things they say is a country that you don't want to be in is a country that's resource rich but doesn't have good institutions. And Australia, we're really privileged to be in a country that has lots of resources but has strong institutions. Yeah. Um, but Afghanistan is a resource-rich country, um, but um, you know has really struggled to build good institutions because it's been a plaything of, of empires. And you know, obviously, then you had the Soviets come in, mm-hmm. and um, the Soviets left. Um, I think it was two or three years before, in a sense, the Soviet empire fell. Um, and you know, obviously, then it's become almost, in a sense, you could also say, sort of a playground of the empire of international jihadism. Um, what we saw leading to September 11th. Um, but I just saw the images yesterday and, and, I, and I felt like this is a really historical, epochal moment. And, you know, I think that in many ways it marks the end of the American century. Mm. And what I mean by that, I don't mean the end of America. I think often people hear that and think it's, oh, it's, you know, sort of end of America. I think it's really the end of a phase of history that the world has lived through since the end of the Second World War. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's also just a, a, not just about – I mean, you go back to – I remember, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, America first and, you know, we went in, EU, you know, lots of different people went in to yeah. um, Afghanistan and um, there were so many op-eds and experts and historians coming on saying 
you know, it's the graveyard of empires. No one, no one has conquered Afghanistan, and we're yeah. seeing that twenty years later. This yeah. is this is the attempts of humanity to shape history towards their ends, and the sense of, you know, particularly the U.S. administration at the time, um, you know, and the neoconservative view of the world that we can go and plant liberal democracy in places, and people will just accept it because of the unique rightness of our position. Um, you know, I think the fruit of that is just lo looks rotten today. You know, and you know the stories of not just the, not just what's happening with, I guess, some of the American incompetence and what it feels like around the planning of the exit, but also, you know, even what we're hearing some of the the way that some of the European nations left. You know, yeah. And um, you know, I just think we're it's we're approach we're approaching a sort of moment where, in many ways, the moral the, the West on both the left and the right has preached so many moralities, you know, and people get, you know, you've got people like, oh, I'm a bit more conservative, I'm a bit more on the left, or people complaining about the woke thing or people complaining about this neoconservative liberal democracy version. All of it under the banner of the West, you know, has fallen short at this point of time. And I look at these moments and, um, you know, I, it, I just think of, you know, the scriptures saying that, you know, history groans, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, creation groans, and I think it's just one of those moments um, where, you know, we need Jesus to come and we need his kingdom to break out in this world. And, you know, for the, the people who are believers in Afghanistan, and I saw some messages earlier this morning of churches that have, and believers have had to go underground, you know, we pray for them, we pray for the people of, of Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, this is a tragic reminder that humans cannot reshape the world. Even the West, when we're trying to do it with our best moral clothing on, um, we fall short. And, you know, like the poor and the innocent, get hurt um so it's, it's it's a tragedy yeah thank you for your reflection on that bit of a different direction yeah um got a question from mike uh a lot of church leaders seem concerned about critical theory and its derivatives as the key modern danger to orthodoxy what do you think uh the cultural trends in thinking we should uh cultural trends in thinking we should be most watching out for wow <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you've just been waiting to answer a critical theory question. <laughs> wow, we're hitting it all today, man. Everything, all the big issues. Yeah. Um, okay, so confession. I've had more people send me messages about critical theory in the last 12 months than any other question. Um, and the secondary thing, uh, uh, Mike's um, secondary point there is derivatives, mm -hmm. which I think in some ways – um, sort of a subset. I'll, I'll sort of do a quick sketch of critical theory in a second, but so a subset of that, particularly again in the United States around critical race theory, yeah. which is applying some of the ideas of critical theory to particularly issues of race. Um, so, you know, back of a postage stamp um, sketch of critical theory really is, you know, a set of philosophical, sociological beliefs that emerge, you know, in the mid-century particularly in France, but you know, the Frankfurt School, also in Germany, yep. you know, which really, I guess, takes a sort of critical view of culture, sees culture as something sort of sense to be interpreted and particularly is really interested in looking at how power manifests in culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll pause there because the reason I have not addressed this any earlier, despite having every man and their dog Wanting me, <laughs> wanting me to do a job episode. Have developed opposable thumbs so dog, that they yeah, can yeah. type those messages to you. We get some amazing questions from dogs. <laughs> if you just Particularly listen to Stalin's them. dog. Stalin's dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's for the listeners of last week. We'll yeah. recognize that joke. Okay, so the reason I have avoided talking about critical theory, despite every man and their dog asking me to, is. We're in such a weird time that I believe you can't 
deal with ideas in their purest form. Okay, what do I mean by this? I think there is this thing that that Western culture has seen itself as this battleground of ideas mm-hmm. and that ideas change the world. And I think lots of people in the church have taken that as well. And, um, you know, that if we can just understand the worldview of this or we can just understand that idea or if that idea gets out, it's going to change things. And there is truth in that. There's no doubt that ideas shape the world. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've spoken about on this podcast is that we've moved from a complicated world to a complex world. Yep. Mm. In a complex world, there is so much more going on. And a complex world operates by a completely different set of rules to a complicated world. Yeah. So I think everyone's looking at this through a complicated world lens, which is what are the beliefs of critical theory? Here they are. People trace it back to Marxism and the structural analysis of Marxism and materialistic, you know, dial, materialist dialectics and all this sort of stuff, you know. And so, if we were going to do the complicated world answer to this, I would go, you know, here is Herbert Marcuse and here is the Frankfurt School and here is Michel Foucault and here's the 22 things they believe and this is how it links up to this and so on. But it's just, we're in a complex world and I look at everything and I look at everything now and it's utterly bonkers. Okay, what do I mean by this? <laughs> This, this, so if I was just to do that, it would not touch on the absolute weirdness of this moment. Okay, so what do I mean by that? <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> we, we have currently, we just spoke about it before, we have a, a great power competition between um, America and China. What is China? China it calls itself a communist country. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a communist country. So if we were just going to look at the idea, you know, if we're just going to look at that and say, okay, we're dealing with a communist regime, they must be therefore Marxist-Leninists who believe this. Okay, so the elites who run China, the Politburo, if you showed them to Marx and Lenin or Stalin, they would just be like, who on earth are these people? Mm. You have this, this leadership of the Chinese Communist Party who many of them have like Bentleys and kids who are educated at Ivy League colleges and <laughs> Oxford. Like you've got this like group of people who call themselves in communist in name only, yet who operate in this completely contrary, weird, complex world, upside down, inside out reality. Completely bizarre. You have this bizarre moment where France – which is the country which, in a sense, spawned much of critical theory. Mm. Emmanuel Macron, who during Donald Trump's presidency was lauded as sort of the liberal centrist saviour of the world, currently talks about Islam and immigration and his ministers talk about these things in a way which is to the right of Donald Trump. The guy who was meant to be the liberal centrist and who prides himself on sort of the centrist liberalism of the French Republic and, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternity – actually, you know, is, has, has got a program where he's actually trying to push back. The French government is trying to push back on what they call woke American ideas. Mm-hmm. Like this is totally bizarre. The other weird thing is you've got people in America who are uh, conservatives who are up in arms about critical theory who are acting like critical theorists. <laughs> so the the cr- critical theory is this – this reading of culture, seeing that there's this hidden power in culture, that there's this, this malevolent forces behind bureaucracy, that government is here to control us. You know, Michel Foucault talked about, you know, biopower, that mm-hmm. the state and government would use like sort of almost the language of medicalization in a sense to control people. So the people who are worried about that at this point in time, Oh, sorry, the, the people who are pushing back on critical theory actually are acting like critical theorists. The people who are pushing back on things like Michel Foucault are actually then worried about masks and vaccines and actually sound like me to Michel Foucault. Oh, sorry, sound like for sure, Michel Foucault to me. Yeah. So, so part of me is like, okay, I want, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. I'm happy to talk about critical theory, but I don't think that's what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, to understand this, Ulrich Beck, the German sociologist, talked about um, zombie categories. Mm-hmm. And he talked about modernity will get to this stage where you've got these categories of thought that people are still are talking about and they're acting like they're real and institutions like they're acting like they're real, yet um, they're, they're a hollow shell of themselves. 
So again, too, to, to go back to this moment, this is such a strange moment because, again, if you were to go to that first generation of critical theorists and you know, Herbert Marcuse and all these people and show them the fact that some of the biggest corporations of our day are like McDonald's, are like doing ads. Like I, I saw a McDonald's a thing on Twitter about you know, advocating for you know, black trans lives. Now, if you'd shown that to Michelle Foucault, that this corporation, which is responsible for so many different environmental things in the world, or even, okay, even, even crazier, Raytheon, the world's biggest weapons producer, intimately linked to the industrial military complex of the United States, that they are now talking in the language of critical theory. This is, to me, this is something bigger is going on than just the problem of critical theory. Mm. Okay, so I'm sounding very passionate here. It's not, this, is, <laughs> this is not passionate. Oh, this is more how, like, I feel like no one is getting how strange this moment is and that there's something weirder going on yeah. than critical theory. And I think what's happening is, again, in a complex world, the network, in a sense, it turns things into zombie categories. So I feel like most of the, like, like most of the commentary around this is missing out on the fact that there's a dynamic that everyone's missing. Mm. Like what is going on in the world? The fact that you've got now conservatives who sound like postmodernists, you've got supposedly leftists who are speaking like the critical theorists but now sound like the powers that the critical theorists were trying to undermine. The fact that, you know, one of the big things of critical theory, and you can take this even back to Walter Benjamin and all these sort of people, was, you know, they felt there was this bureaucratization of life, that that what was going to happen is the modern world was going to create this giant bureaucracy that was going to stifle and, you know, and even people like, you know, Alexander Kojev, you know, talk about like, that would turn us into insects, you know, so this, you know, and this was the fear. But so the people who are using the language of critical theory are also part of the bureaucratic class. Like this has been spread through um, you know, human relations departments you know, and all these different things. Like like the main spreader of so much of this thought today is human relations departments. It's like teachers, you know, education departments. It, it's just so strange. So part of me, if you hear my exasperation, there is something far more weirder going on. I've not heard many good takes on what is happening. I think this is an empty, the bigger thing for me is how can we have, I think there's these ideologies wandering around at the moment that people are trying to put over the new dynamics of a complex network world and they don't fit. Does it come back to what you were talking about before about um, the left and the right in uh, America and I guess globally in a way as well, that we want to be able to put things in boxes yes. and understand them. And so there's this framework that was yes. developed, you know, centuries and centuries ago and we're like, well, maybe we can use this to help understand yes. what's going on. People yes. just want to know what's going on, right? Yeah, and it becomes a lazy hermeneutic of understanding the world, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, and, and, I, and I do think what's happened is, like I hear some of the push, so, so I do hear the people saying, you know, is there a problem with, you know, it, is this critical theory have flaws? Absolutely. Does capitalist theory have flaws? Absolutely. Does libertarianism have flaws? Absolutely. Does centrism have flaws? Absolutely. What we're seeing in Afghanistan now, what we saw in the, in the global financial crisis was supposedly the centrist. This is the centrist failing. <laughs> like, um, so, you know, I, I see that part of the reason, and, and maybe I was just, I've just been fortunate enough to grow up in a place like Melbourne where I've been around evangelicals who also then had a strong biblical prophetic critique of the culture. You know, I think people like John Smith and, and people who, are, who I've grown up around who who I think part of the reason this is happening in certain places that they're seeing, like, okay, go back one step. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book from Fear to Faith in maybe 1953 and he said something really interesting. At that time, the world and the church had come out of World War II, they were traumatised and they were worrying about the rise of communism mm -hmm. in the world. There was, you know, reds under the bed, the red scare, this was all across the world. And he said, what if we're looking this the wrong way? What if, yes, there's problems with, with um, communism, but actually what if God is using this to show how we've been deficient? Yeah. <laughs> and what if actually at this moment the fear around critical theory – and look, again, I see all the problems with it. You know, A lot of what I spoke about in, in this cultural moment was a critique of some of that stuff. So I have a critique, absolutely. Um, but I have an equal critique of what I've heard on the right as well. And yeah. And – you know, I wonder what has actually happened is, particularly in the evangelical church and, and many parts of the Catholic church, and there's Catholics who listen to this as well, we, we let go of the biblical prophetic witness 
that is in the scriptures. Mm. The scriptures have their own critical theory of how human structures fall short of the glory of God, how human structures will inevitably trend, whatever they look like, whatever nation they were, whether Egyptian, Babylonian, or at times Israel. Mm. And you know, I believe that whether it's a liberal democracy, a, mon- a, a you know, a monarchy, a, a libertarian a communist, a socialist, a Swedish democratic socialist, whatever, an Australian Liberal Party or Labor Party, all of these things fall short of the glory of God. Is that, am I saying don't get involved in politics? No. But I think we need to get it back in its right order where we are devoted and pressing into God and his biblical vision for the world and really cynical <laughs> about politics. Okay. Because... So I'm not saying don't get involved. Get involved in your local community. If you need to serve in politics, do that. But let's get cynical about some of these ideologies because in many ways part of secularization was ideologies replaced theology. And so mm. that's where I'm at at the moment. I see some of this stuff. I see now that you know people are talking about oh we, you know critical race theory, but really they just don't want to have a conversation about race. And so I think there is a mm. biblical thing here where the scriptures call us back to justice and righteousness that flows from God, not from a human construction. And every ideology, let me just put it this way. Oh, oh, man, this is what happens when you lock me up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have an ideology, have you ever been to, like, have you been to a rally? I remember like you go to these youth rallies and – you know, they have the altar call and like, man, like, you know, there's the music and you feel this pressure and the spirit's moving and it's an altar call and you're like, oh man, I feel like I feel convicted, I need to go. Right, and maybe you're sitting next to someone and you can see they're convicted and you, go, you would go down with your mate to like the front and you'd pray with them. Okay, if you've got an ideology, if you're a conservative, if you see yourself on the left, if you're a libertarian, whatever the heck you, you see yourself, take your ideology to the front of the altar and let it come under the judgment of God and then see what are the parts that are from humans and let them stay at the front of the altar. And whatever reflects the wisdom and goodness of God, let it get up with you and come back to the seeds. Let's baptize our ideologies. Whew. Great. Thank you for, <laughs> <laughs> for that answer. Um, I actually, I wonder if... Um, you can sort of expand on this a little bit more, even though yeah. you that was expensive. Uh, you did this Instagram post last week uh, where you talked about nature. Ah, uh, yes. Can you catch people <laughs> up on that and maybe explore it in the context of um, yeah. critical theory as well? Yeah. Look, uh, okay, so one of the things of the modern world – and all these ideologies come out of the modern world. If you look at the Enlightenment, all of these things from left wing, right wing, you know, all of them, capitalism, socialism, all of these are, you know, Western-based solutions that emerge. They've affected the whole world but predominantly come out of the West and predominantly come out of the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. One of these sort of um, – tenets of the Enlightenment was if you think before the Enlightenment, humans felt at the mercy of nature. Yes. And nature is this wild – or struck a thing, you know, that, that humans feel very weak in front of. Yeah. And a storm, um, a, um, you know. A bushfires. Bushfires, <laughs> yeah. you, you name it. Um, and, and part of the rise of science was this sense that what humans had done was, in a sense, tame but then conquer nature. So first it's like we tame it, we understand it, we understand the rules of the universe, what is the Newtonian universe and how do we understand those rules? And that then enables it. So first we tamed, understood it, tamed it, and then you think of the age of conquest and you know exploration and all this is like humans going out into the wild. Again, we're back at the oh, frontier yeah. myth. I was about back to, to say, the frontier here myth. we are, John Wayne you know, again. And you know, the explorer who you know, goes on the high seas and, and then you think about where does all this exploration go? So, you know, you've got people like um, going to you know, tap oil and mm. dig gold out of the ground and it's this like you know we can take from the earth you know what is ours and conquer nature which then furnishes this this world of growth and the modern world so there's an expectation the average 21st century developed world person in a sense thinks they've beaten nature and it's interesting nature changes you know it's mary antoinette before the french revolution is this aristocrat you know had a little garden in her palace and she'd go and pretend she was a shepherdess Mm. 
in a sense, that's what every modern person does. You know, we have our, our urban living in our city. We can drive our cars and we expect all the infrastructure to work. And, and then we'll go and have a little holiday rustic retreat and, you yeah. know, like go to nature or we walk around the botanical gardens. And in a sense, this is a sign that we've conquered nature. Now, well, again, if you've seen my backyard, you'll know <laughs> that we haven't conquered nature. <laughs> Almost there. You could if you wanted to. You yeah, know, well, yeah. Um, but it's really interesting too because, again, too, this comes back to, you know, Genesis and this comes back to the sense that we're trying to create Edens. Mm. And, you know, Cain, after he murders his brother, the Scriptures tell us, wanders east of Eden. I find that verse fascinating. And, um, you know, Jacques Ellul in his book, The Meaning of the City, you know, focused on that and he sort of says, you know, in a sense, the first, the first building of the first city, um, in a sense, is his alternate to the, the, the Garden of Eden. You know, we're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We're kicked out of the presence of God. Um, so we try and create our gardens. You know, in a sense, our gardens reflect that. So there's a, there's a good part of that. There's mm. a sense that we're called to be Shoma, stewards of creation. Um, but then when we try and do that without the Holy Spirit, without the presence of God, not under the, the, the rule and reign of Jesus, that it goes bad. So the modern project is an attempt to build Eden, to build the, the garden city without God, who's at the center of the mm -hmm. garden city. Yeah. And so I think what's happening at the moment is most of our political solutions of the Enlightenment, whether, again, socialism, left, right, libertarianism, even our ideas around equality, all of this come from an idea that, well, we don't need to worry about nature now. We mm. can just work on human nature. We've tamed and conquered nature. Now we're going to tame and conquer and manage human nature. And then you have a pandemic <laughs> and these tiny little replicating cells, however it emerged in Wuhan, which I'm sure we'll find out in time, this tiny little thing, so small, actually brings down the giant managed global garden city that we're trying to build of globalization. Mm. And, you know, not only that, you know, you look at the, the report that the UN um, put out um, I think it was a week ago of, you know, code red for humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, we are seeing temperatures being reached in the Arctic Circle we've never seen before. You know, yeah. the hottest days on record. You know, I'm not going to go into all of that, but I do believe that also what's partially, we go back to the culture war, put it in a bucket. We've done that with the environment. Um, but the world is facing tremendous challenges again from nature, from climate change, from pollution, yeah. um, from pandemics. And what a lot of people don't know is, you know, people talk about you have a once in a hundred year pandemic. As humans push into the natural environment, you have more chance of pandemics, more chance of um, environmental damage is going to create more pandemics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Um, so all of a sudden we are facing the challenges of a pandemic and we're trying to answer that with the political answers that were designed for the age of human nature, freedom. Mm. You know, yeah. freedom. A cell does not give a stuff about your freedom. <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> coronavirus is not sitting there going, oh, you know, man, oh, man I, I'm really trampling on some civil liberties here and the declaration of, you know, human rights. Like, like, <laughs> like it doesn't care. Like, you know, climate change is not going to care about mm -hmm. that. You know, so again, too, am I saying that freedom is not important? No. Am I saying that human rights is not important? No. Am I saying that all the political things that the West has created and come out of the alignment is not important? No. I'm happy to live in a really well-functioning liberal democracy like Australia. But what I'm saying is we're facing the return of nature. Yes. And there is an opportunity here because I think what's going to happen is increasingly many of the ways that we've understood the world are actually being short-circuited. Mm -hmm. And Therefore, what that means is there is an evangelistic opportunity. Again, too, I've said this multiple times on this podcast. You know, George Hunter said, look for the gaps between idols. We're coming at this age where nature is returning. And, and one of the things that people have often said is that, you know, secularization is linked to urbanization. Yep. Um, we've talked before here about Roger, uh, is it Ronald Engelhart's, you know, theory that um, people get into issues of what he calls post-materialist values when they're not worried about their safety. Mm -hmm. So all these questions are, you know, around identity and so many things that people are concerned about, you know, the issues of critical theory, they're all actually based on the fact that they're the questions that people ask in very affluent, functioning, competent yes, societies. Safe. Yeah. You know, we're looking at, you're going to see increased interruptions to the global supply chain. Mm. You're going to see stuff that you expected would always be there that's not going to be there through challenges, through things like pandemics and the environment and so on. 
So there's going to be an evangelistic opportunity that we need to be attuned to. Mm. And I think we need as leaders also ask the question, or Christians, just full stop, or human beings, how have we bought into the myths of the garden city without God, of globalization in the 21st century? That is a big question to reflect on. Um, maybe, I well, I'm just going to throw it out there. Mm. We can revisit that at, yeah. in another episode. I think yeah. that would be yeah, really cool. um, good to explore. Uh you know, final question. Yes. Um, I know that you've had a number of, of questions from um, connections you have overseas. Wondering what on earth is going on in Australia and New Zealand with our uh, more unique approach to suppressing the uh, coronavirus yeah. Yeah. pandemic. Yes, great question. Well, you know, again, again, all this sort of, it's funny, there's all these disparate questions, but they all sort of link uh, today. Uh, and I'm very aware, yes, you know, I, I know Fox News in the US is like currently <laughs> relaying, um, you know, news conferences from our, um, you know, friends um, in New state Zealand, Premier, Jacinda, yep. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and our state premier here, Daniel Andrews and so on, and sort of as evidence of some sort of, you know, emerging Orwellian totalitarian regime in Australia. <laughs> um, again, too, part of that goes back into what we are just talking about, you yes. know, trying to process a pandemic through, yep. um, you know, political categories that are important but yeah. may not link to nature in the same way? Yes. Um, okay, so Australia and New Zealand view the world very differently. So the quick Australia, New Zealand thing, and actually this works well because we can well, bounce we it off. Well, we see everything upside down, right? Yes, exactly. So it's back to front, upside <laughs> down, or is just the rest of the world upside down? I think so. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so currently where we're in, there's significant restrictions in New South Wales, the state above us, we're in restrictions, Canberra's in restrictions, and the whole of New Zealand's currently in restrictions. And they're much yeah. higher than other places of the world. Why is this so? Why has Australia and New Zealand approached things through a COVID zero? So I'm not going to give you – I'm not saying – I'm not going to argue here as this is the right way to do things. I'm yep. just going to explain this is how Australia and New Zealand do it. Again, why? Because it goes into the historical context of the kind of nations that we are in. Australia and New Zealand have a very different historical view of the world um, than Europe and America. Mm -hmm. Again, we talked about the frontier myth um, and uh, the frontier myth is this idea that you can go into the frontier and you sort of discover yourself. That was very much the new world idea uh, of the United States. And that in a sense that the individual could escape the constricting confines of the collective and particularly um, because America went through um, a war of independence, um, it pushed back against British rule. Mm -hmm. What's really different about Australia and New Zealand, and I realise I am speaking on behalf of my Kiwi brethren, and cistern <laughs> is that a word? Um, that, um, but yeah, so, so I'm gonna look that up. Um, you, you so, so um, but what's really the thing? Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, we uh, the Queen is our monarch. We never had a a rebellion. So we see the we crown. Had well, we had some rebellion, but we never <laughs> had the big rebellion. Okay, so we see in a sense the Queen differently, and it's really interesting too that essentially what this means is. We were a, a collection of colonies. New Zealand was you know, going to possibly be a part of the, what became a federation. So Australia as a nation became a nation in 1901 when the different colonies uh, joined together and decided that what the government was going to do, we needed a federal government in order to protect us militarily. Yep. So we have a very different view of the government. We're not like in America, you look at the whole host of um, – you know, popular culture, there's often this sort of the government is watching you somewhere. And even you have people like, you know, you, you, we just saw where, you know, we did our Capital Riot episode where in a sense what you had was even the president will posit himself against the government at times. Yes, you know, yes. So um, the legislature. Mm -hmm. um, now that's that differentiation is not in Australia. We have this idea of the queen who's far away, who's sort of almost this yep. benevolent power. Um, but we will look to our our government actually pr to protect us. Mm. Now, what's really interesting too is like Australia, New Zealand, if you look at how it begins, it begins as colonies and what you have is this sort of British or English infrastructure come out and they create this bureaucracy to try and make stuff run really well. So you've got, particularly in Australia, you've got us hugging the shoreline and, you know, we don't venture out into the centre of Australia. We actually fear the wilderness. We don't want to go to the wilderness. You know, we maybe want to see a bit of nature, but there's this fear that the middle of Australia is there's nothing there. It's actually mm. this scary place. If you look at the history of Australian cinema... Um, oh, I'm so glad you went there. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Go on. Yeah, often the city is the place, you know, you think of everything from... 
oh, there's that like, welcome, is it welcome to Whoop Whoop or something. Mad Max even. Like, oh, yeah. Mad Max yeah. is like the actual frontier for Australia is a dangerous place with twisted people. That's actually frightening. And, and even some of the history of racism in Australia, it's almost like Aboriginal people have seen as, well, they're the people from that central place that's scary yes. and almost become figures of sort of fear. Yes. Um, and, and so you've got then these sort of English bureaucratic well-run cities that then hug the coastline. Yeah. And so Australians want to hug the coastline. We don't want we don't want to go and find ourselves in the center of the frontier because you're going to die there. That's yeah. that's the And even I remember it was fascinating like I remember seeing this thing about Australians buying four-wheel drives and there was this there's a Frenchman uh, uh, marketer advertiser called Clotier Repay and he and he basically he he does these sort of group focuses where he comes up what is the what is the cultural one code word to explain a culture? And his one for Australia is survival. And he, his mm -hmm. idea is that Australians like – so like, there was this classic ad years ago. It was like, you know, suburban Australia, manicured lawns, and this mum goes out in her four-wheel drive SUV, and then all of a sudden the road transforms and she's in the outback and the snakes oh, like attacking her car. I remember that. Yeah. So it's this feel like you live in one of the most peaceful – um, functioning urban environment. I mean, I don't people know this, but Australia, I think, is the most urbanised country in the world. Mm. Um, so you live in this really well-run urbanised country, but at any moment you could be plunged into the outback and you could die. You need yeah, protection. Yeah, yeah. So we see the government as protecting us. Yeah. So what that means is the second thing is Australia New Zealand has this thing of that we can cut ourselves off from the world because we're islands and we actually don't just want to protect ourselves from the outback. We want to protect – Or I, I know New Zealand's a bit different. You've got the sort of rolling hills in New Zealand, yes, you yeah. know, sort of Middle Earth, you know. Um, <laughs> okay, so but I think that Australia and New Zealand do have in common is that we can then shut the border and protect ourselves from the world. So that's what happened when the pandemic began. Australia mm. New Zealand, like, we're just going to shut ourselves off from the global system. And even though Australia New Zealand, I find like I've spoken, my joke is I go and speak to places around the world are like, is there an Aussie or a Kiwi here? There almost always is, no matter where I go in the world. Yeah. Love traveling, but happy to surrender that for this period of time to protect ourselves from the outer world. Um, so in a sense, that's what our governments have done. So I think what our governments did was had a, a sort of really, and again too, for people who are listening overseas and worrying that we've headed into a left-wing totalitarian <laughs> dictatorship, we have a national cabinet. So our prime minister, who is an evangelical, social conservative, member of our conservative party, mm. has passed this rule that we will go to hard lockdowns to get our numbers right down to get to COVID zero. And part of that as well is I think Australia is more, and we talked about this before, but mm. whereas America looks at freedom, Australia more looks at safety. And it's yes. the same with New yeah. Zealand. So, you know, New Zealand's had one case that I think went to a four today and Jacinda Ardern has locked the country down. Mm. Um, that's what our state has done as well. That's what Canberra is doing and, and you know, different states. Conservative. So going beyond the left and right thing here, even though we get a little bit of wash from some of the American internet stuff and there is some voices which, you know, sort of talk in that language, is it's a very different way of looking at the world which, which says we don't want to lose a single life. It's very much, you know, yeah, our, yeah. Our, our, our state has a goal that no one dies on the road. So Australia trends much more towards safety. So that, has, that explains our thing. And, and I think what a lot of people don't know is that actually from the opinion polls, people in a sense want to have that approach. Mm. Our, so our, our in West Australia, which is our furthest West state, Mark McGowan, the state premier equivalent of a governor, literally won the last election through doing hard lockdowns, shutting the border and going hard. He, he, was, he was so successful in his election that the opposition party conceded 48 hours, I think it was before. So, oh, wow. yeah. So, so in Australia and New Zealand, if you want to have political competency, you need to keep cases down. You need to protect people from COVID. And the economy actually has performed well in Australia and New Zealand compared, you know, with, with all of this happening, um, you know, compared to what's happening in the rest of the world. So that's why Australians and New Zealanders look this completely differently. Mm. Um, we actually, in a sense, that I know not everyone's, you know, there's dissenting voices in the midst of this, but it's a very different way of looking at things where people are happy to sacrifice some immediate freedoms. Yes. So, you know, we're, we're in a lockdown here. New Zealand's in a lockdown. People are willing to do that and we'll do it because on the other side, they want to live in a COVID-free reality. Obviously, Delta's presenting a challenge to that, um, but that's just a, a quick understanding of why. And so the other final thing is that Australians, I think there's also this, there is this sort of British thing that Australians culture has, has, has received to have sort of just like, We'll complain a bit, but then we'll just push through together. Yeah. And you don't make a big deal. You don't be an individual. I think we're far more collective 
Um, it's more of a sort of like um, together thing, um, you know, that we push through. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, that togetherness, I guess, is, is fostered by our physical like, yes. isolation as yes. well. Yes. Well, what a marathon effort. Wow. You know, is there any other little tidbits you wanted to? Oh, I think I think we've hit cover? some big, big issues. Yeah, today. yeah, we really have. Um, thank you for oh. all of your insights. I, um, for anyone who's interested, I did look up uh, whether cistern. <laughs> well, I don't. Well, it's not cistern. That's a no. whole different thing. Yeah, that is <laughs> definitely a different thing. I'm going to need to do some further um, research on this because cistern is listed here. And it survives Ooh. in a dialect of a dialect of which Jamaican Jamaican is the yes most patois yes that's how I know it there Cold you go Jamaican dance hall songs <laughs> brethren and sister yes yes there you go amazing well you weren't you weren't too far off uh, so that brings us to the end of our um, listener questions for the time being we're not going to uh, do a tangent on Jamaican dance hall. Oh, no, that, that – well, uh, write it down. We'll come back to it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. Um, a reminder, if you want to support us as a podcast and what we do here through Red Church in Melbourne, uh, you can do a number of things. You can rate and review on whatever podcast platform you listen. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to our mailing list, which is at our website, rebuilders.co be great to hear from you. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time.